see ya. Good morning. Everybody awake? Are you? Yeah. Got your coffee? Great. If you want to turn your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 9 and 10. And if you just put a little placeholder there, we're also going to be in Acts chapter 10, because Acts chapter 10 is going to be the story beneath the instruction. So uh, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, and then Acts chapter 10. The story of Peter that we're going to look at today uh, in this uh, message series, God of All Grace, uh, the message today is on being a chosen race. Paul, uh, Peter is going to tell us about what it means to be a chosen race in the people of God. And the story we're going to look at, and actually in Acts chapter 10, is the story that shows us how Peter changed his mind on this and how Peter came to teach the church what he does about being the people of God. And so we're going to jump into the passage here, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he tells them that God has laid a precious cornerstone. God has laid the foundational block, the foundation stone on which the entire edifice, the entire building of God's holy people is being built. And Jesus is the stone that makes men stumble. He is the rock that makes them fall. Quite clearly, he is the stone that makes men stumble and the rock that makes them fall. Why is that? Well, it's because of the message about Jesus. The message about Jesus was offensive to every conceivable people group. It is the message that the Savior of the world, God's chosen Messiah, elect from eternity to save the world, was crucified on a Roman cross. And the Romans could not accept a message about a crucified Caesar a crucified, exalted king. They could not accept that message. And the Jews could not accept the idea that, that the Son of God was, or the Messiah was crucified, much less that he was inviting all of the nations of the earth, every tribe, every language, every tongue, every ethnicity, to come now into the family of God. For the Jew in the first century, you and I have to try to appreciate just how difficult it was for Peter to write these words. The success of the gospel of Jesus in the first century is a miracle. There is no earthly reason. There is no natural reason that I could point to. There's no sociological reason that I could point to to say that's the reason why the gospel of Jesus flourished in the Roman Empire the way it did. There's no natural reason for it. It's an absolute miracle because it is not a message that would appeal to anyone, to any people group on any level. And Jewish hostilities were due to their extreme aversion to a message that welcomed all men from every tribe under heaven into their family. You see, they were the chosen race in Abraham. They, according to the Old Testament, were the royal priesthood. They were the nation of priests and mediators who ministered to God, the king. 
And they were the holy nation. They are the ones that God said, be holy as I am holy. In other words, be like me. However I am, that's how you're to be. And they, according to the Old Testament, according to the Torah, were the special possession of God, plucked from the tribes of men, plucked from the ethnicities of the earth. And now Peter is using that very language for the Gentile Christians scattered across the Roman Empire. How hard was it for Peter, a first century Jew, to say that to his Gentile brethren? It was difficult. How does an ethnic Jew like Peter, a man so proud of his Abrahamic lineage, a man who struggled with his own biases and bigotry, a man who was taught from childhood that Jews were not in any way at all to associate with Gentile people, how does he overcome that? And to have such a warm and friendly disposition such a warm, outreaching disposition toward those people he has been taught his entire life are not worthy of salvation, man. And if Peter had not overcome it, you and I would not be sitting here in this room today. So I want to show you how he did it. First of all, Jesus put him in a training program as a disciple and showed him on multiple occasions, this is what I've come for. I have come to reach the people that you think are unworthy. I, think I have come to reach the people that you think are beneath you. And it starts with that woman who is called the Syrophoenician. She's a Canaanite. If you go back and you read the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, you'll see that the Canaanites were the people indigenous to the land that God had promised Israel, and the war that started between them in Joshua went all the way up to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It was a centuries-old hatred that these people had for one another. And now here's a Canaanite woman who is coming to Jesus and begging, pleading that he deliver her daughter from demon possession. And Jesus initially... Seems really cold. Calls that woman a dog. Says, is it right to give the the bread that belongs to the children to the dogs? Now that's a test of responsiveness. Jesus has no intention of being unkind to her. And, And she says, she answers wisely, sir, even the dogs get the scraps that fall off the table. And I just came for some scraps. And Jesus says, there you go. Now that's faith. And he turns to his disciples and and Peter and and the disciples and says, did you hear that? That's faith. That's what it means to follow the Messiah, to follow the Son of God. That's what I'm looking for. And so they learn that God's mercy is even for the people they think are the worst people in the world. And then you have the Samaritans. Oh, my word. John chapter 4, good grief. Jesus, the disciples are like, why are we going to Samaria? No one goes through Samaria. It's dangerous. These people are awful. They don't deserve, right? So on and so forth, dot, dot, dot. And then they get there, and Jesus tells her the truth of the gospel. He says, you don't know, everything you know is wrong. And then he offers her mercy and grace in her sin, and she receives it, and her entire village is saved. And the disciples walk away scratching their heads, saying, this, this, Jews are not supposed to associate with Samaritans. And Samaritans are not supposed to associate with Jews. And then you have the disciples who 
see the risen Jesus. He has risen, resurrected from the dead. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And now I am authorizing you, go and make disciples of all ethnic groups. That's their commission. That's Jesus' parting word in Acts 1.8. Right before he ascends to heaven, Jesus Jesus says, now, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. There's the first circle. Judea, Samaria, and then all the world. And they go, right, right, Jesus. That's good. That sounds good. Seven years later, seven years after that, Peter finally gets it. And it's in this story in Acts chapter 10. Jesus cures him forever of his racism. This story takes place in three acts. Act 1, chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. It's Cornelius's vision. It says there was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment. And Cornelius is a high-ranking Roman soldier. As a commander of a regiment, that means that he commanded about between 500 to 1,000 men. So he is a man of very high standing in the Roman military. He also lives in a, a port town called Caesarea. Now Caesarea is 35 miles north on the coast of Jaffa. Caesarea is a Gentile uh, coastal town. Jaffa is a Jewish coastal town, okay? He receives this vision and this word from an an appearance of an angel who comes to him and says this. Uh, There's a man named Shimon. He's a Jew. Uh, He he is residing down in Jaffa, and you are to send two men, two men down there. Verse 5, it says, now send two men to Jaffa and and call for Shimon. That word Shimon means the one who hears God. And, and who is also named Petras. That's his Greek name his parents gave him. That means the solid rock. So the one who hears God who is also the solid rock. And he is lodging with another guy named Shimon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea in Jaffa. As he, he says, send your men down there to get him. He has a very important message. This message is going to change your life. Act 2. Meanwhile... Peter is getting a message from God at the same time. This is Peter's vision. Peter goes up on a rooftop to pray for the afternoon, the evening, because it's cool up there. And while he's praying and they're preparing a meal for him downstairs, it says this, he fell into a trance and he saw heaven open in an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. And uh, then it says, on that sheet were four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. A voice came out, booming out of heaven, saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said. Yeah, imagine that, just no, (laughs) right? For I have never eaten anything impure and ritually unclean. Again, a second time, the voice came to him and said, What God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times. Three times, God had to do the same thing to get the message through to this thick-skulled Peter. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken back up into heaven. So this is like a Gentile picnic. 
I mean, the blanket comes out of heaven and every animal in the Old Testament, camels, shellfish, lobster, you name it, is on the menu. And God says, go eat that. And he says, not, no, never, not will I. No, I will not do that. And God says, don't you call anything impure that I have made unclean. Now, he's scratching his head thinking, what is the meaning of the vision? I don't know. Act 3, verses 17 through 30, is the reconciliation. The two men sent from Caesarea, Caesarea, who were sent by Cornelius, come down. And they say, Peter, uh, God has given our master a vision. And he has told us to find you so you could come and tell us the message. Whatever message you have for us. And so the next day, they set out on this long journey, and they finally arrive. And it says there that there was a large crowd gathered, assembled, to hear the message that Peter was going to bring. Now, this Roman centurion would have been the paterfamilias of this home. The paterfamilias is the god of the house. In the Roman world, that person runs the show. And every person associated with his house, including his servants and including their families and extended families, would have been his property. So now he tells his servants, his children, their children, his in-laws, everybody is there. And he probably makes enough money that he lives in a villa, which means they're meeting in the central courtyard. And that central courtyard, as a house church, could seat about 150 people. So now we're talking about a pretty large large crowd. This would be a small church from our perspective, but this was a large house church, and all of these extended people are meeting there. A large crowd gathered, and Peter knocks on the door. He comes in, and this is how he introduces himself. Verse 26, Peter said to them, you know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. (laughs) Imagine you coming over for dinner to someone's house and that being your first statement. I'm not supposed to associate with you, but God told me to. So, so he says that we were taught by our laws. Which laws? Not the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, from the very beginning, the only people they are supposed to not associate with are people who worship foreign gods, but it is not based on ethnicity. Because all throughout the Old Testament, from Genesis... All the way to Ezra and Nehemiah, what we see is that the Old Testament makes provision. God made provision to incorporate foreigners, sojourners, and Gentile, any Gentile who wanted to come in and be a part of the Jewish faith. And so this is not according to Old Testament law. This is according to his law, the Pharisaic law. He's raised in Second Temple Judaism, and Second Temple Judaism was known for Pharisaic law. And Pharisaic law says, don't have any Don't come near those Gentiles because they're impure, they're unclean. You don't want to defile yourself. That's the law he has been raised under. And God is now overturning this. So what do we learn from the story about racial reconciliation? Number one, the church is the one place where we can hear the truth on these matters. The church is the one place where you and I can hear the truth on these matters. It is the church that has been entrusted with his life-changing message of good news in the Messiah, Christ. Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 3.15. He says, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. That's the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. 
He says that we, the church, the people of God, are the pillar and foundation of the truth. Why? Because we have this word. Because God has entrusted us with this book, and he has entrusted us with this gospel. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation stone. And we are being built on and in Christ. And we are the ones with the truth. I've heard a really famous famous comedian Uh, probably the most famous comedian alive today. And on several occasions now, I've heard him say publicly uh, that the art form of comedy is the one place where the truth can be heard. And the other day he said it, and I saw it on TV, and I screamed at the television set, no, it's not. I just look like a crazy man screaming at the TV because he's wrong. This is the one place where the truth can be heard about these matters. Because God has given us the message of reconciliation with all nations. Verse 39, look at what he says. Now, if you will just learn, learn where it is or memorize it, verses 39, Acts 10, 39 through 43. This is the gospel. This is the coolest, most encapsulated paragraph on the gospel you are ever going to learn. It says, we ourselves, he says, are witnesses of everything he did, both in the Judean country and in Jerusalem. That's the historical Jesus. Jesus is not just some parable or an analogy. He's not just some allegorical, uh, fanciful story that teaches us spiritual truths. He was a real man in Judean history, and he says, we saw him in history. And yet, they killed him by hanging him on a tree. That's crucifixion. Any gospel that does not involve Jesus hanging on a Roman cross is no gospel at all. And God raised this man up from the, on the third day and caused him to be seen. That's resurrection. You don't have any resurrection. You don't have a gospel. And not by all people, though but by those of us whom God appointed as witnesses. These are firsthand eyewitnesses, people who were in place like Peter, who were in a position to falsify it if it weren't true. And he says he showed us the firsthand eyewitness testimony who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. That is a bodily resurrection. The same body that goes into the tomb comes out of the tomb, bodily He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly says, I am your judge, there is no other. So now God has appointed God the Son to be the judge of your eternal status. He is God. And all the prophets testify about him Through his name, everyone who believes and receives in him receives the forgiveness of sin. This is the gospel according to the scriptures. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 15, we preach Jesus crucified and buried according to the scriptures, resurrected from the dead according to the scriptures. There's no gospel apart from the scriptures. So now if you just learn where that is, you can sit and walk an unbeliever through that right there and show them the entire gospel right there. And this is the message he preaches to them. And their lives are transformed. Proverbs 14, 25 says this, A truthful witness rescues lives, but one who utters lies is deceitful. If the building is on fire and somebody bursts into your apartment and says, Hey, go back to sleep. Everything's fine. They're a liar. And they're not there to rescue you. And so we have, we have been called 
to call men to reconciliation with God and reconciliation with each other. That is what God has called us to do, and we tell them the truth. And here's the truth. Every single person in the world, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their national background, their nationality, is made in the image of Almighty God. Made in the image and likeness of God. Second truth. Every person, no matter who you are, we have all fallen into sin. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious, holy standard. And we are worthy of judgment. Number three, God desires that all men everywhere would come to a knowledge of the truth and salvation. And so we broadcast and proclaim this word. We broadcast and proclaim this message to every creature under heaven, regardless of what they look like. We do this because this is our calling. And if you don't know these three truths right here, then I'm sorry you haven't even started to get on the map about how to cure what ails our culture. Because this is the core of it. The church is the one place where we can hear these, the, the truth on these matters. Number two, salvation is from the Jews, but it's for the world. It, it has been a Gentile phenomenon for so long, since the Bar Kokhba revolt of 135 AD, to be exact, in which the Jews wanted nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus and nothing to do with Gentile Christians. And so since 135 AD in that Bar Kokhba revolt, you and I, the the Christian faith has been so overwhelming, a Gentile phenomena, that we forget that it's actually a Jewish message. Uh, The Christ is the Jewish Messiah. And now we learn in this passage that God no longer plays favorites. Oh, he did. He chose Israel. He chose the Hebrews as his chosen people. But now after this Cornelius story, this Roman Gentile recalls the vision God gave him of going to find Peter so that he he could hear this message. Peter knows that God has been speaking to him simultaneously. And it says in verse 34, Peter began to speak. Now, seven years later, (laughs) after giving the Great Commission, ten years later after meeting the Samaritan woman in her village, now I fully understand that God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites, proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Who did he send the message to? The Jews. You see, Paul said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. So they were thinking the whole time, this is just for the Jews. I mean, we finally have our Messiah. We are saved We have been rescued from the enslavement of sin. And now God has to break into their world and say, hold on. I told you seven years ago, you're supposed to take this to the nations. This gospel is for all peoples. Now, to be clear, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He is the fulfillment of Abraham's promise to bring forth a son who would bless the nations of the earth. And that is precisely what Jesus is fulfilling And now you and I as Gentiles, if you are a Gentile and you're not a natural-born ethnic Jew, you and I have the privilege of being adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. And as adopted sons and daughters, we have the hope of heavenly glory. And with the hope of heavenly glory, we then have the hope of new creation, resurrected bodies in a resurrected world. That's the end of the story. And that was Israel's hope. That was their message. That was God's promise to them. And now we have it. We're included. We're invited to the party. 
Number three, God desires to heal the whole world by healing the individual. God wants to heal everybody in the world by healing the person, the man, the woman. Look at verse 37. It says, you know the events that took place throughout all Judea. So Jesus' story is famous, and they know it. Beginning from Galilee after the uh, baptism, baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. Now, he is talking about Jesus' inaugural sermon and his ministry thereafter. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets up and preaches his inaugural sermon in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, and he is utterly rejected by his own. A prophet is not accepted in his own hometown. But when Jesus gets up to preach the sermon, you know what his text is of the day? It's Isaiah 61. Now, we only get a little snippet of it in Luke 4, but I want to read you the whole text that, that Jesus read. This is the whole text that Jesus performed and read for them. Here it is in Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to those who are captive, and freedom, jubilee, to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's grace, his favor, and the day of, uh, of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of the ashes they have, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of a despair, and they will be called uh, righteous trees, planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins, and they will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many, many generations. The focus of the prophecy is you fix the man first, you fix the world second. And everybody else in our culture today wants to fix the world first. And nobody, there's no organization in this country, there's no organization on our planet that has the message, fix the heart first. Fix the man first, and you'll fix the world. My favorite story about this is a dad who found a really elaborate puzzle of the world in a magazine. And so he cut all the pieces, every little country, he cut them all out, and he threw them on the table, and he told his little boy, his little three-year-old boy, he says, now, go in the kitchen and put the world back together. And the little boy, he scooped them all up into his shirt, and he went into the kitchen table, and he got out some scotch tape, and two minutes later, he came back. The whole world, all the countries were fit all back together. And his dad says, you're a genius. How did you do that so fast? He goes, oh, it's easy. I found out there was a picture of a man and a woman on the back of the puzzle, so when I put the man and the woman back together, I put the world back together. And that's Isaiah 61. That's the, that's the message that Jesus came to preach in Luke chapter 4, is that I have come to set the captive free. I have come to set the person who is enslaved by sin free. And when I do that, I'll fix the world. I will solve what ails the world. And then he says, we will restore the former devastations. That's when that happens. The Spirit of God had anointed Jesus of Nazareth to undo the works of the devil's tyranny in your life. And the Spirit of God had been there to heal the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted today? Is your heart ripped in two? Jesus has come to heal your broken heart. Are you enslaved to sin today? Jesus has come to set you free from the captivity of slavery. 
Are you here suffering injustice? Jesus has come to bring his vengeance on suffering and his vengeance on injustice. I'm about to knock my drink over here. Should have put the top on. He says, I've come to exchange your ashes for beauty. I've come to exchange your ashes for a crown of glory. That's my mom's life verse. Number four, the Holy Spirit is God's gift to everyone. So if it's come to the Jews and it's coming through the Jews for the rest of the world, then the Holy Spirit, which is God's promise to, the, to Israel, is actually for everyone. Look at what he says. While Peter was speaking these words, how would you like that? I tell you, as a preacher, I would like for all of you to just bust out in tongues right now. Not necessarily to turn us into a Pentecostal church, but this would be fun. Just to see, like, the, just as I'm speaking, God's word, just the Holy Spirit poured out in such a visible, powerful way. And this happens necessarily with Peter there. God could have saved Cornelius when he first spoke to Cornelius. He could have poured the Holy Spirit out to Cornelius right there. But he wants Peter present. He wants Peter to deliver the message so that the rest of the church knows God has now invited the Gentiles in to our holy family. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message, the circumcised believers who had come with Peter. These are the snobby Jews, right? Were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. <laughs> I love that phrase, even on these people. For they heard him speaking in them speaking in tongues and declaring the greatness of God. And then Peter responded, can anyone withhold water, water and prevent these people from being baptized? Who have received, already received the Holy Spirit? Just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that they asked him to stay for a few days. So the Jewish people who have suffered oppression, slavery, maltreatment, abuse, and mass execution by the tens of thousands on Roman crosses. Here we have the most disenfranchised people group in the history of the world, and their representative, Peter, is making an overture to the people who were their oppressors. This is what reconciliation in Christ looks like. This man is reaching out to the people he should have hated. This man is reaching out to the very people he should have built a wall and said, no, you can't come into our church. And the Roman, that centurion, it's, it's no, it's no uh, accident that we're talking about a man who represents Rome's power and Rome's might and Rome's oppression. And this Roman centurion is welcoming. He is a God-fearer. This person has already decided he believes in the God of the Jews, not the stupid pantheon of the Greeks or the Romans. He has already decided he is going to uh, advantage uh, the Jews around him and, and give them benevolently and sort of sponsor the Jewish people. And here's what I want you to see in this. Before God can convert Cornelius to a believer in Jesus, he must fir first convert Peter to a believer in racial reconciliation. God could have converted Cornelius the moment he spoke to Cornelius, but he doesn't. He wants to wait until Peter comes there, hears what God is doing, and then says, now I understand. Now I understand what the plan is. The plan is to reconcile all men of every ethnicity to God in one household. And when God achieves that in Peter, then he pours the Holy Spirit out through the gospel on these people. Powerful. God must challenge Peter's inherent 
culturally conditioned biases against Gentiles and Romans because God wants to pour the gift of the Holy Spirit out on every person. And listen, until you have had the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out on you, I, I don't expect you to understand what's going on here. I don't, under, I don't expect you to understand this profound love that you will have of another person who is another race. Because when, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on you, Paul re- refers to it this way. The Holy Spirit poured out in love, abundance of love into our hearts. And that's what he brings is an abundance of love into our hearts. Now, Peter was a Jew from Palestine, a fisherman by trade, a craftsman. Went to synagogue every Saturday or Friday night. Went to festivals every time uh, there was a festival in Jerusalem. But he wasn't a rabbi. Paul was. Paul is not just a Jew who was raised in the Pharisaic system to believe the way they believe about Gentiles. Paul was a purveyor of it. Paul describes himself as a Jew among Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You think of the most orthodox, buttoned-up Hebrew you've ever met. Paul says, I I was a better one. Now, he also says, I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. You you talk about the most buttoned-up, religious, tight sect in the history of Judaism. Paul says, "I I was first of my class. Uh, excelling so fast, I was a student of the great Gamaliel. Think about that. Now, Paul, who thought these Gentiles were ho- horrible people, dogs, less than human. Here's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. After the Holy Spirit gets a hold of his life and changes his mind. Look at this language. He says, so then, remember that at one time, you, you Ephesians were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised. By those of us who were called the circumcised. Now, you need to know that that's a pejorative. That's a slur. That's what they used to call those Gentiles when they weren't around the Gentiles. Yeah, the uncircumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. He says, at that time you were without Christ. You're apart from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world. Why didn't you have hope and why didn't you have God in the world? Because you weren't a Jew. Because you weren't born into God's chosen family. Abraham, and because you didn't have the Torah. That's why you were without God and without hope in the world. Where am I? He says, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who made both groups, uh, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility between us. In his flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and express, expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. What happens when he tears down that wall of racial hostility between them? You're talking about one man in Christ from the two, and there's real peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put to death Hostility, that's the only way hostilities get put to death is in the cross, right? He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to us, those of us who were near, for, though, uh, for through him we both have access to one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, Built on the foundation, there's that Peter language again, built on the foundation stone of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple 
In him you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. That is remarkable that a Pharisaic Jewish man could say that about the Ephesians. And if you know anything about the paganism that the Ephesians practiced, it was the grossest, nastiest paganism on earth. And he says, at once, at one time you were not a people, now you are a people. At one time you were not citizens, now you are citizens. You used to be without God and without hope in the world, lost in the stupidity of idolatry and immorality, and now you have been brought into the family, one family of God in Christ Jesus at the cross. Now here's the end of the story. This is, the, this is it. This is the end. Here's how John the Revelator sees the end. After this, he says in Revelation 7, 9, and 10, I looked and there was a vast multitude from every ethnicity. Remember that word nation is the word ethne. It means ethnicity. From every nation, from every tribe, from every people and language, which no one could even number. Innumerable. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. What is going to be the scene in heaven? It's going to be a multi-ethnic, multi-racial racial worship extravaganza. And God, the Lamb who sits on the throne, is going to be worshipped by innumerable masses from every tribe and every tongue and every ethnicity. And we will all be there, and I hope you will be there. Again, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Here's what he says. I want to end with the scripture that we started with. But you're a chosen race. You, you're a chosen elect race, a royal priesthood serving the king, a holy nation designed to be like God, a people of his special possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous, marvelous light. And once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And since we have this truth, let's proclaim it. Since we're the only organization on the planet earth who is the pillar and foundation of the truth, let's be that. In the world, and let's tell people you can only be reconciled in Christ Jesus. Hostility ends in Christ at his cross and not before. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are so excited about this message because uh, we realize we're the beneficiaries of Peter's experience with Cornelius. Had you not done that, we would not be sitting here today. But you, by your great mercy and because of your great kindness to us, you are the one who invited us to join your holy family, the elect people of God on earth. And God, today we are privileged and we are humbled. God, we are overwhelmed at the advantages that you have given us much in every way in the gospel of Jesus. And Lord, would you just light a fire in us right now? God, would you give us a fire in our heart and a fire in our mind to share this good news of reconciliation with lost men and women? Every person is made in your precious image and every person is lost in sin and every person you desire to win them and bring them into the gospel of your love and will you help us be, be the ones. In Jesus' awesome name, amen.